Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Amy, and I'm the executive pastor here at Incarnation. This morning, we are continuing our sermon series on Imitate Me, which is taken from Paul's words to the church in Corinth that we had just finished reading 1 Corinthians. But he tells them repeatedly to imitate me, not me, but Paul, as he imitates Christ. And so each week, our preachers have been bringing someone that they are hoping and trying and wanting to imitate. And the person that I am bringing to us this morning, who I have been wanting to imitate poorly and imperfectly for the past 20 or so years, is Archbishop Desmond Tutu. He's on the cover of this book. And I don't want to imitate every last single thing about Desmond Tutu. There are plenty of things that we probably disagree about. But what I am longing to imitate him in is his extraordinary capacity to take Jesus at his word, to take the gospel as reality, and then to live as though that is really true. In the case of forgiveness and reconciliation, to take Jesus's command to forgive as far as Jesus does, to really try to live a life of forgiveness that's at the heart of the Christian life. And so it actually doesn't matter that much that I don't agree with everything Desmond Tutu or any other Christian thinks or does, because actually our capacity to forgive and be reconciled isn't about agreeing about things. We'll see in our text and in his life that it's rooted in God's forgiveness for us. So my relationship, not personal, but impersonal with Desmond Tutu began when I was in South Africa in 2004, which was the 10th anniversary of the end of apartheid. And even though I had known who Desmond Tutu was before then, I think it was being in that place at that time that really cemented for me a sense of connection to this man and to the magnitude of what he had done for this country. And then a few years later, I was working for an international NGO, and I found myself by myself on an international trip with a free afternoon. And so I brought this book that I had been carrying around for a couple of years, hoping to read. I brought it with me, and I ended up sitting on the beach and in a single afternoon just devouring the whole thing. And you can actually kind of tell, I don't know if you can see, but the pages are really warped because I read this in like damp sea air, and it shows. This also was kind of a dark and cynical season in my faith. I was feeling really distant from the church and from God, and I had a lot of questions and doubts. And yet on that beach, Archbishop Tutu just preached the gospel to me through the words of this book and through the example of his life. He was someone who dared to take Jesus seriously. And that's what I was desperately longing to see at that time. Someone who was really living as though the gospel was real. Forgiveness is possible. Reconciliation is reality. And in this book, Desmond Tutu says that he only ever really preached one sermon. I think those of us who preach probably all feel that way. But Desmond Tutu's one sermon can be summarized by the words of Romans 5.8. 
that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were forgiven when we didn't deserve it. That was the drumbeat of his ministry. And then out of this abundance of forgiveness, we are called to forgive. It's all just as simple and as super complicated as that. And today's gospel reading from Matthew is a conversation on this kind of forgiveness. Peter wants to know, how many times do I have to forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? Now, seven times is a lot of forgiveness. If you think about your deepest wounds and how many times you're going to need to forgive that, seven is a lot. Peter's not being stingy here. But Jesus isn't after a lot of forgiveness. Jesus is calling Peter and us to unlimited forgiveness. That's what he's getting at when he says that Peter must forgive his brother not seven times, but 77 times. He doesn't mean there's a literal cap. It's not the number that matters. It's a figure of speech, and the idea is the limitlessness the more than you can imagine-ness of this forgiveness. There's no limit to the number of times that Peter or we are called to forgive because there's no limit to the number of times that God forgives us in Jesus on the cross. And when we receive his forgiveness, we release our right to hold back our forgiveness from others. And this is powerful and challenging enough on its own. But it's even more powerful when you realize that Jesus is referencing a story from Genesis 4. That sevenfold and 77-fold, that has happened in the heart of the Hebrew Scriptures. What Peter and Jesus both would have had running through their minds when Jesus is saying this. In that story in chapter 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. It's the first murder in the Bible. And God comes to Cain and says, what have you done? Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Cain's act of violence has ruptured something in creation. And so God punishes him. God executes justice. He banishes Cain to wander in the wilderness. He sends him far from the place where his family is where he has known God's presence. And he tells them that his work in the ground, his toil, is going to be futile. He's not going to be able to produce life from the ground anymore. Cain has killed his brother. He has sent violence out into the earth, and the consequences are big. But when Cain hears this, it's too much for him. He can't take it. He begs God for mercy. Cain, the killer, is scared that when he goes off wandering, estranged from his people, someone will kill him. And so he begs God to protect him. And God is merciful, and he does. He puts some kind of mark on Cain. We don't know what it is, but some kind of mark that promises anyone who harms this man will have to face God's punishment sevenfold. And Cain goes out wandering. He's marked both as a guilty man and a protected man. And then down his line, his great, great, great grandson, Lamech, 
murders again. This violence, this sin, this evil just escalates and continues. And Lamech claims that vengeance of God that Cain is marked by for himself, but he escalates it. He intensifies it. He says, if Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, then my vengeance is 77-fold. That violence and that vengeance just keep rippling outward to that same idea of limitlessness, 77-fold. And that's the story that would have been echoing in Jesus's and Peter's ears when Jesus tells Peter to forgive his brother, not just sevenfold, but 77-fold. Jesus is reversing this pattern of Genesis 4. He's replacing brother murder with brother love. And he's reversing this escalating, rippling out vengeance with this escalating forgiveness of God. Jesus is setting things right, and he will use Peter and his other disciples and all of us to do this. This is that ministry of reconciliation that Weber read about a couple minutes ago in 2 Corinthians. That if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us this reconciliation. And what I so admired when I read about Desmond Tutu was that He really believed it. In this incredibly dark aftermath of apartheid in the land of South Africa, he dared to believe that there really was a new creation, that there really was a reversal of vengeance with forgiveness, that he could trust it. He dared to live like it's really true. And he kind of bets the farm on that idea. He calls everyone to this kind of radical limitless forgiveness. But let's back up a little bit because I think to really understand the potency of what he does, we just need to know a little bit more about him, a little bit more about apartheid and the context in which Desmond Tutu lived. So Desmond Tutu, as you can tell from the cover of this book, was a black South African and he was born and raised under the system of apartheid. He became the first black archbishop in Cape Town which was the highest post in kind of the hierarchy of the Anglican church in Africa. And we need to understand the apartheid system that Tutu was born and raised in. Under apartheid, there was the kind of segregation that we're familiar with through things like Jim Crow laws and separate facilities, but there was also a whole other level of separateness, of apartness. Blacks could not live where whites lived. They could not live in urban areas. And so anywhere that black people had made a home and a neighborhood for themselves, their homes were destroyed with government bulldozers. And they were forcibly sent from the cities into these just destitute kind of makeshift settlements called townships. And then because they couldn't pass from township to city, or into any white-owned business, or just any white spaces at all, every black person had to carry a pass, pretty much to go anywhere. And the system of stopping people and checking their passes 
became just this incredibly humiliating, dehumanizing, and often really violent process by the police. At one time, there were, what is it, thousands of people being arrested every day for pass violations. They estimate that someone was being charged or interrogated or put in jail for a pass violation every two minutes in South Africa. And obviously, people didn't like this. And so over time, these opposition groups uh, came up. They started to oppose the apartheid system, some peacefully, many not peacefully. And the government security forces were really alarmed by this. And so they intensified their oppression. They went after these opposition groups. They hunted them down. And in this air of secrecy and fear, they committed some of the most cruel and dehumanizing and frankly sickening things I've ever read. Just these incredible acts of torture, of psychological harm, of physical harm. People were disappearing, people were being kidnapped, bodies disappeared and never came back. It's just a terrible climate. And in the middle of all this, Desmond Tutu just repeatedly went face to face with the opposition leaders, with the government leaders, with the leaders of foreign governments. And he was always calling people to peace and to justice. And where he was dealing with Christians or people who claimed to be Christians as he often was, he called them to repentance. He reminded them of the way of Jesus. He faced armed soldiers, he faced students throwing stones at him, he faced daily death threats for decades, but he never stopped. He held on to this truth that Jesus was making all things new. He wrote this, during the darkest days of the struggle, when the morale of our people was low in the face of rampant evil, I used to say, this is a moral universe and the upholders of apartheid have already lost. And then one day they did lose. In 1990, South Africa's president, de Klerk, announced he would begin dismantling apartheid. And within four years, they were having their first democratic election in which black people could vote in their homeland. And overnight, it was like a new country was born, this new post-apartheid South Africa. But countries can't heal overnight. They might be born overnight, they might start something new, but they can't heal. Just like in the story of Cain, the blood of all these victims was crying out for the ground for justice. This was a land and a people that were just traumatized and scarred by so much evil. And they didn't trust each other with good reason. And Desmond Tutu could have heeded all the calls for vengeance in that moment, and it would have made sense, but he didn't. He called people instead to embrace something far more radical and difficult, this gospel-shaped call to forgiveness. He urged the new government to pursue restorative justice, a justice that wasn't primarily focused on punishing wrongdoers, but on truly restoring the whole country to wholeness, to make a way for people who were enemies to live together in peace. 
But this kind of justice would require an incredible act of truth-telling, of repentance, of confession, and forgiveness. And so some people complained, is that really justice? What about justice? Can there really be justice if we don't punish the people who are doing all this to us? And Archbishop Tutu had both a practical and a theological response. Practically speaking, these people had to live together. And the threat of punishment was one of the only things, or sorry, removing the threat of punishment was one of the only things that would compel people to confess at all. And without their confession, there was no way for the truth to ever come to light, for anyone to ever know what had really happened to their loved ones, to all these victims. And they knew that the government had lied, had destroyed evidence. There was really no way to bring most of these people to justice. So practically, there had to be another way. But Tutu also had a deeper theological response. He said that the perpetrators actually hadn't gone unpunished, no matter how much it looked like. Because the way they had participated in this evil had dehumanized them too. They were traumatized too. They were not beyond the reach of redemption. And this reasoning was deeply Christian. I'm just going to read a section from this book. Tutu says, Christian theology says that the perpetrators, despite the awfulness of their deeds, remain children of God with the capacity to repent. We Christians are constrained by the imperatives of the gospel, the good news of a God who has a bias for sinners, contrary to the normal standards of the world. What we are, what we have, even our salvation, all is gift, all is grace, not to be achieved, but received as a gift freely given. And each of us, each of us, has the capacity for the most awful evil. None of us could predict that if we had been subjected to the same influences, the same conditioning, we wouldn't have turned out like these perpetrators too. This is not to condone or excuse anything they did. It is to be filled more and more with the compassion of God, looking on and weeping that his beloved had come to such things. We have to say to ourselves with deep feeling, not with cheap piety, there but for the grace of God go I. Eventually, these calls for forgiveness were heeded, and the government set up what's called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the TRC, and they appointed Desmond Tutu as its chairman. And the TRC was just this public forum where victims and perpetrators under apartheid could come and just tell their stories. And in exchange for just telling the truth, victims would receive some form of restitution, usually very small and symbolic, and the perpetrators would receive amnesty, legal and political forgiveness completely. And this act of telling stories might seem like a small thing, but for these people who had been living under fear and lies for such a long time, hearing the truth spoken was this profound step toward healing. Things done in the dark could finally brought into the light 
confessed and grieved and lamented together. And Desmond Tutu tells a story of a child named Babalwa, whose father had been abducted, brutally tortured, and then secretly executed in some grave long forgotten by the police. And when she shared her story, she said, this little girl said, we really want to forgive, but we don't know who to forgive. People were hungry to know the truth. They were longing to be reconciled. They just needed the full story. And the TRC had story after story like this, these incredible acts of mercy and forgiveness in the face of just unthinkable cruelty. It had stories of perpetrators who confessed all the evil things they had done, bringing their darkest moments into the light for the world to judge them and see them. And some people complained that these perpetrators' confessions or apologies, that they weren't good enough. They were lukewarm or maybe they were done just for the cameras. And as someone who personally appreciates a very hearty apology, maybe even occasionally sort of demands it, I really get this. I feel this tension. But Desmond Tutu responds to that with the words of Isaiah 42 that Katie read a few minutes ago, that a bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. God will not extinguish what is small and weak and imperfect and inadequate. He doesn't need much to work with as he brings justice. And the words, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, are some of the hardest words for anyone to say. But even a feeble apology, even an apology with bad motives, is enough for God. It's like a dimly burning wick, and God won't extinguish it. Well, 15 years ago, I read this book on a beach, and I was just cut to the quick with this call to really believe and live the gospel, to really know to my core that I was limitlessly forgiven, and then to really begin to explore how far is Jesus asking me to take that forgiveness in my relationships with others. But today, these words actually strike me as maybe more fresh and more needed and more appropriate to our moment because we are in such a deeply divided time in the American church, in American society. We've just been through this pandemic that has exposed how deep our divisions really are. And I confess that a lot of times I look at this divided landscape and I don't want to confess and I don't want to be reconciled and I definitely don't want to forgive. But Jesus really has reversed the curse. He really is turning brother murder into brother forgiveness. And he really is making all things new. He really is pushing back this cycle of vengeance with his forgiveness. And he really is calling us to do that, 
both with the people in our lives and with the powers and principalities of this world. So how will we make this reality visible in this world of division and hatred and violence? How far will we take Jesus's command to forgive 77-fold? How far will we take the ministry of reconciliation that he has entrusted to us? This is really challenging. It calls us to so much courage and so much humility and so much repentance. But it is what he asks of us. And then we're going to be talking about this Wednesday night at our canopy chat. We're going to bring it kind of into our real lives. So if you have questions or challenge or just want to talk more about this and hear how other people are thinking about this, please come on Wednesday night. Now let's spend a moment in quiet.